Hi, Maeve. Hi, Jim. How are you? Uh, I'm not bad. How are yeah? you? Yeah. Great to hear from you. It's great to hear from you, as you always. You only call when you want a podcast. Uh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm a busy person. If I'm going to make a call, I figure it should be content. <laughs> This is Social Distance, The Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. I'm Jim Hamblin, a doctor and staff writer at The Atlantic. I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a comedian and a contributing writer with The New York Times. Maeve, the first time you were on the show was a long time ago, last spring. And we asked you about live performance and how that was faring in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah, even just then when I was introducing myself as a comedian, it felt like a lie because, yeah, this time last year I was telling you and Catherine, like, we weren't sure if we should cancel our shows, but we did. (laughs) And I mean, Jim, like, you know, comedy shows, you're sitting close to one another in the dark laughing, which is, you know, a great way to spread it and and believe me, laughing a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I was, I've been to your shows. You have it's on hiatus, I guess, but the, the most popular comedy show in Brooklyn. And I sit there and I look around the room and I just see people laughing and laughing. You sit there in silence. <laughs> yeah, but it's great to see and it's really fun to witness. But it's gone, you know. For now, we've just started talking about maybe. You know, there's this news that maybe by May, there'll be enough vaccines for everyone in the US. So maybe in the summer, we might be able to have some kind of outdoor shows, even though like sitting outside in New York in the summer is grotesque. (laughs) You have made your feelings about summer known in the pages of the Times. Uh, (laughs) So, but maybe this summer, like people will be willing to put up with like sweat running down their um, butts to listen to jokes. I mean, what do you think about this? It made headlines all over the world, like President Biden saying that the US is going to have enough vaccines, you know, for themselves um, by the end of May. Like, do you think it's coming just in time or how are you feeling about it? I It's so far ahead of where I imagined we would be. You mm-hmm. know, this time last year, if you told me we would have enough vaccines for every American by May of 2021, I would have laughed you out of the room. That's what makes me laugh is when people are just really <laughs> wrong and I would have laughed. Yeah, you and... don't you don't like it. Comedy is so subjective and comedy to you is people making mistakes about science. Yes. <laughs> and but but then here we are. And yeah. so there's this interesting mix of that I, is wonderful, but I also, for reasons we talked about before, it yeah. is problematic that we have that many doses when um, some countries have barely begun or haven't begun a vaccine rollout at all. And mm-hmm. and then um, I also worry about, you know, at what point people will not take them or how far we can get toward herd immunity before we have real issues with people for whatever reason saying no and yes just the fact that we have enough vaccines for everyone does not mean it's like you know mission is not accomplished until they are people are vaccinated it it, it's something to be excited about in some sense for sure do you feel the excitement i mean yeah i'm in ireland where it's much much slower so i think by may they're like maybe we'll have all the 70 year olds done by then sorry 
very oh, slow is it here. really that slow? Hmm. Yeah, it's very slow. Um, is there resentment toward Americans who are going to be vaccinating <laughs> no. <that> healthy? <laughs> Those days are are long gone. I feel like the rest of the world is just like, oh my goodness, America! Anything you can yeah. do to help yourselves, please do it. Yeah, there's. We used to be. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, it was like, oh, America, they've got it all: Levi's, burgers. Yeah. But now it's more like. Oh my goodness! What's happening over there? Yeah, what it, they're just uh, self-indulgent, decadent. Oh my goodness! No, I don't know where oh. you would get that from. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the vaccines are bedazzled. Uh, you can get really high-end mm. ones. Yeah, <laughs> and I think this leads me actually though yeah. to this question that I am hearing from people about the different vaccines that are out there and what the differences are and if people should have any preference for getting one or another. Jim, um, I have so many questions about that because, you know, it's going to change when it becomes available to my age group in Ireland. It's going to be, I think, the Johnson & Johnson one. But also I have family all around the world who are getting the Sputnik vaccine, who are getting the uh, Sinopharm vaccine, as well as the options that you have there in the US, which is currently... What the f freezing one? The two cold ones. The two colds. Uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, and and Moderna, mm -hmm. and now we have many, many doses of Johnson Johnson right. rolling out. So, Jim, like, apart from you know, which one should I get if I have a choice? What about the freedom that you have after getting vaccinated? Can you just yeah. go about your life? You know. That that's a really interesting academic question. You know, can you transmit mm -hmm. the virus after you've been infected? It's something we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before. It's something that we don't yet know, so that makes it, it difficult for experts to say definitively. You know, after you get vaccinated, you should feel safe going out and doing literally anything you want. It's more that we expect it's conceivably possible as long as there's a lot of virus around that you could carry it and spread it to someone who's not yes. vaccinated. So we really need to think about behaviors collectively, as in once your cohort is entirely vaccinated, and then once your community is entirely vaccinated, you, you, you can mm -hmm. do things as normal. But it's not just when you as an individual are one vaccinated person in a sea of unvaccinated people. Yes. Vaccines are not designed to like coat your mucous membranes in armor and kill right. any virus immediately upon contact. They're designed to ha help your body stop the virus from replicating so you don't get sick. It doesn't mean you can't have some virus uh, on or in you. So the right. question is just how much that's happening. And I've been trying to think of a helpful metaphor. Um, so it, <laughs> you know, it sounds less like a failure of the of the vaccine than more just like, no, this is how vaccines work. It means it's working if it stops yes. you from getting very sick. Um, so vaccines can maybe be thought of like uh, life jackets. Okay. They don't stop you from getting wet. They stop you from drowning. Yes. It's like just because you're wearing a life preserver, if you fall off the boat, it doesn't mean oh. that you're going to skid across the top of the water because water can no longer touch you. It's just that you're not going to be in peril. I think that makes total sense because you can still get um, the virus, but just not as bad, right? Well, yeah, that's that's the working assumption. We're, we have not actually documented a lot of this because of the clinical trials. Mm -hmm. very, very little testing is done. 
in those clinical trials. They were mm -hmm. they were designed to look for illness, um, mm -hmm. and some are now swabbing people and going through and looking for vaccinated people and saying, you know, can't, do you test positive for the virus? We know we know you're not getting sick, but are you testing positive? So, and there's two questions then: Do you test positive, and are you carrying enough for a long enough period to be a risk of transmission? It's right. not, you know, just because you have a little on you briefly does not mean that you're a high risk to other people. So those are two open questions that are really tough to answer and <laughs> will take time. I see. The issue for some people is that this message is not optimistic enough or it makes it sound like the vaccine is mm. not great. The mm. vaccines are great. Um, this is a feature of vaccines. But I want to test that metaphor uh, <laughs> with someone smarter than I on this. How about? Okay, because you know what else? Some What people else? on um, the Lusitania, they put on their life jackets wrong and then they ended up floating upside down in the water, dying. <sighs> Isn't that so sad? Um, is that true? Yeah, it is. Hopefully they make life jackets now that you can't put on upside down. I don't even know how you'd do that. I know. I guess it was just the 1910s and, and they were like, hey, say, what do you do? You know, we got to do it this uh -huh. way. Make it easier. Fit in more. And then the poor people were like, okay. <laughs> So oh. we need so to think do about a whole episode a on this probably, uh, but another time. <laughs> but we know that these life jackets, they really work and they're easy to use. So, okay. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I've just been reading about that. So it came into my mind. I would love to keep going down this rabbit hole, but mm -hmm. um, let's give Angie a call. We are going to talk to Angela Rasmussen. She's a virologist at Georgetown University where she studies emerging viruses, including coronaviruses. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Hi, Angie. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you, Maeve. Um, nice, to, nice to talk to you again, James. You too. Could you introduce yourself and say your title and uh, what you do? Yeah, so I'm Angela Rasmussen or Angie. I'm a virologist I'm currently affiliated with the Georgetown Center for Global Health Science and Security. In the next uh, month, actually, I'll be moving to Canada um, where I'm taking a position as an associate professor level research scientist at Vito Intervac, which is a vaccine research institute at the University of Saskatchewan. Good to speak with you again, Angie. Uh, you are featured in the piece that I wrote in The Atlantic, and you also wrote something recently in The New York Times about this question that seems to be hanging over a lot of people's heads about transmission after vaccination and how that possibility is being communicated to people. <laughs> um, and many scientists are kind of reluctant to say with any degree of certainty that vaccines prevent transmission and that has some people worried. Could you explain the basics of that concern? Absolutely. So when the vaccines were tested in the phase three clinical trials, the primary endpoint of those trials was either symptomatic COVID-19 or in the case of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, severe COVID-19. Um, so mm -hmm. the trials were actually looking at disease rather than looking at infection. And those are two different things. So mm -hmm. SARS coronavirus 2 is the virus that you can be infected with, and it causes in most people the disease that we call COVID-19. So we tested the vaccines against the disease, so we know how well they protect against that. What we don't know is how well they protect against infection by SARS coronavirus 2, the virus. And I think that people have been confused just because 
scientists, uh, as always, are you know, acknowledging the limitations of the data that we have. And one of those limitations is that we can't put an actual number to how well those vaccines prevent infection and therefore how well they will impact uh, transmission in the population. Now, that said, I think that vaccines this efficacious, it would be extremely surprising and unlikely for them to have no effect on infection and transmission whatsoever. Um, But really, this is just about not being able to put a number to how well they protect against infection, as opposed to protecting Mm -hmm. against disease. Right. This seems to come back to something that I know I've been guilty of a lot of uh, media have been of sort of just using terms interchangeably, coronavirus cases, coronavirus infections, COVID-19. And that is sort of bleeding over into this idea when you have people who are going to be vaccinated and potentially could test positive. And that doesn't mean they have COVID-19. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It means um, <laughs> that you y- that's how vaccines work, that you can theoretically mm. still carry the the pathogen without getting sick. Do you think we need to do a better job of being careful about when we're talking about coronavirus infection or coronavirus cases or COVID-19 cases? I mean, we need to meet people where they are. And some people you know, are just not going to respond. They don't, they don't really care about the difference between SARS coronavirus 2 and COVID-19. They get that it's an infectious disease. Um, I think that it's not necessarily important that we are super, you know, critical about the language that lay people use when talking about this. I think that we do need to do a better job of driving home the point that even if the vaccine doesn't provide perfectly sterilizing immunity, meaning that that it protects completely against a productive infection that the vaccines are still tremendously useful both for people who get them and at the population level. So I think that the one place where we have sort of come up short is explaining to people that it's still worth getting the vaccine, even if you are low risk for severe COVID-19, it's still worth getting that, not just because you're going to benefit, it will have an overall net benefit for society. Yeah. Can I run a metaphor by you, uh, which is not at all perfect, but that maybe these vaccines are something like a life vest, that the point was not to keep you from getting wet, it was to keep you from, uh, you know, being in peril, drowning. And that when a a life vest does not prevent you from getting wet, that doesn't mean it's failing, it's still, it's doing its job very effectively. It's just about whether or not we have the right expectations. I think that's a pretty good metaphor. I'd actually extend it to like a survival suit. Um, So it's still not necessarily going to keep you from getting wet, but it's going to keep you from drowning and getting hypothermia. Yeah. Oh, that's even better. It might keep you from getting wet to a certain degree. Yeah. What we just don't know right now is, is what degree that is. But you're happy to let Jim keep up this kind of, I'm a sea captain. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We were talking about ships before. Uh, this is a, a digression. Um, I think that's great, Jim. Well, I mean, it's a life jacket that protects you in in a number of ways. Yes. So I think that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. So I guess this brings us to the question that we're also hearing from listeners now as people are finally getting access to vaccines they've been waiting for for a long time. 
Um, there are different vaccines. They are not identical. Do you have any advice in people who might be concerned about getting one vaccine versus another? I just tell people right now, get whichever vaccine is offered to you first. Um, a lot of people have been concerned about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that recently got authorization because overall it's less efficacious at preventing symptomatic COVID-19, but it's extremely efficacious at preventing severe or critical COVID-19. It's a hundred percent based on the trial so far effective at keeping people out of the hospital and keeping people from dying. So you know, to me that that is still an excellent vaccine. And I personally would take that if offered it today. Um, I haven't been vaccinated yet. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't wait for Moderna or Pfizer, as some people have said they're planning to do. Now that said, as we get more information about all of these vaccines, it's entirely possible that one or more of them might be recommended for one group over another. Um, because that is one thing that even though the clinical trials really did make a, a good effort to enroll people from many different subgroups with many different comorbidities uh, and and pre-existing risk factors like age, the clinical trial process was designed in this case to be as quick as possible because we need these vaccines now. So they don't necessarily have great data from all these different subgroups. And as we vaccinate more and more people, we might get some observational data that, you know, one vaccine versus another is indicated for people, you know, over a certain age or with diabetes or whatever. So that that could emerge, not to say that it will, um, but that certainly could. But for now, um, based on all of the data that I've seen, all three of these vaccines that are authorized for use in the U.S. are excellent vaccines, and people should take whichever one is offered to them first. Is there a simple way to think about the differences in the way these vaccines are working, or is it just too complex and we should just take them? <laughs> I mean, it's complex, but I don't think it's that complex. Um, what people should understand is that all vaccines regardless of how new the technology is, work essentially the same way. They're exposing your immune system to really the shape of the virus. It's kind of like sticking up a wanted poster uh, around town um, and letting your <laughs> immune system get a look at it. The, the differences between the vaccines are really the approaches that are used to hang up that wanted poster. So the mRNA vaccines basically give instructions to your cells to, to make the spike protein from SARS coronavirus 2, and then your immune system responds to that. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses an adenovirus, which causes the common cold in people normally, to deliver that same spike protein, uh, to, to carry those instructions basically for your cells to make the spike protein. Both of them you know, are, are effective vaccine delivery methods, uh, but really they're doing the same thing ultimately that the flu vaccine does, which is an activated vaccine. And that's where you basically infect a bunch of chicken eggs with influenza virus, and then you chemically inactivate it, but it's still doing the same thing effectively. It's, it's getting that protein that's on the surface of the virus that your immune system will recognize and respond to into you. And so in that sense, even though these technologies are new for, for getting the antigen, which is what we call the viral protein that the vaccine is delivering, 
they're just new ways to basically get that into your body and expose your immune system to it. They're, they're not really working fundamentally differently though, from any other vaccine in the sense that they are just exposing your immune system to the viral protein, the antigen and letting it respond. So you explained that beautifully. And I actually love the metaphor of like wanted posters. And I like to think of like my body being like, I'm ready. I know what he looks like. But um, what about these kind of percentages that we hear bandied around? Like one is 95%, you know, and one is 66%. Like, is that something to pay attention to? It is and it isn't something to pay attention to. So it is in the sense that that is describing the trial endpoints and that's describing the efficacy. Mm-hmm. And in the trials, um, one thing that's really important, I think, for people to understand is that the Moderna and Pfizer trials had a different endpoint than the Johnson and Johnson trial. The Moderna and Pfizer trials were looking at preventing symptomatic COVID-19. So if you came down with any kind of COVID-19 symptoms, you would report that to the people running the trial. They would test you with PCR to confirm that you indeed had Mm -hmm. SARS coronavirus 2 infection and you were showing COVID-19 symptoms. The primary endpoint of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine trials was severe COVID-19. So it wasn't just if you got sick or developed any COVID-19 symptoms, it was if you got really sick. So they're they're kind of like comparing apples and oranges in a way uh, in the sense that the trials were actually looking at different things. So even though, yeah, it's a percentage, it's measuring efficacy, it's measuring different endpoints efficacy. I think that's one thing people should keep in mind When you look at the ability to prevent severe COVID-19, I believe with Johnson & Johnson, it's closer to 80% efficacious. And if you look at hospitalization and death, it's 100% efficacious. So it can be confusing for people to to say, oh, well, 66% efficacious, that's way worse than Moderna and Pfizer. But that's when you include all of the cases of very mild disease, because that wasn't the main thing that they were looking at. So they're really being measured by different yardsticks effectively. Right, right. So it's not a grade on the same exam. It's a different exam. Exactly. And yeah, to clarify too, I think people hear severe disease in that context. And that when you're talking about a disease that's killed, uh, 500,000 Americans at least, uh, you would think a severe case would mean hospitalization or near-death experience, but that's not how it's defined in that trial. That's a separate category, correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, and I need to to look at the FDA documents again to remind myself how they define severe COVID-19, but severe doesn't necessarily mean hospitalization. Yeah. I think it, it has to do with um, supplemental oxygen and the types of treatments that people receive, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going into the ICU. That would be critical COVID-19. Okay. Sorry to go kind of in the weeds on that, but I think it's, it's an, a distinction that seems like it's going to become more potentially more of an issue on people's minds as different vaccine options are available around the country in coming days and weeks. Absolutely. Um, Can I ask you about vaccines around the world? Because some of my family, you know, like millions of people are getting the Sputnik vaccine and perhaps the Sinopharm vaccine. Have you looked into those as much as you have the American ones or where are you at with that? So I have to remind myself which vaccine the Sinopharm is because there are several um, 
vaccines that were developed in China and they're all different uh, and they all have Sino in the name. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. There's Sinovac, Sinopharm, and CanSino. Wow. Uh, and I don't remember which one Sinopharm is, but I do know a little bit about the Sputnik V vaccine. And mm -hmm. uh, actually, my husband is Russian, and he informed me that it's pronounced Sputnik. Um, no way. <laughs> I know. None of us call it that. Um, I think Sputnik sounds... It's a much more fun word to say. Sputnik. Yeah. I know, Sputnik. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do know about that vaccine, and it is um, similar to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but it's different in that it's two doses, and it's actually two different adenoviruses that are used to vector the vaccine. So it's what's called a heterologous vaccine regimen. Um, so you get basically one dose of an ad5 adenovirus 5 vectored vaccine and then you get a second dose of an adenovirus 26 vectored vaccine which is what is used to vector the the Johnson and Johnson vaccine huh. um the reason for doing that and this comes out of work to develop an HIV vaccine um is that with these viral vectored vaccines there can be a problem with what's called vector immunity because you're using a virus to deliver the antigen for the vaccine Mm -hmm. your immune system will also respond to that virus and will develop immunity to the adenovirus vector itself. So by giving a different adenovirus for the second dose, you get around uh, that pre-existing vector immunity. And because, as I mentioned before, adenoviruses cause common colds, there is a level of immunity in the population to these viruses themselves. They're human pathogens. So um, if you get, you know, if you previously had a cold that was caused by adenovirus five, then the first shot of Sputnik V might not work as well for you. But the mm. second shot uh, of ad 26, which is actually much less common in the human population, um, will probably work. And uh, the, the same is true if you've had ad 26 before, but not ad five. There's not anything out there right now that we know to be radically more precarious or a real outlier globally that could introduce some kinds of disparities or issues that we're not thinking about. We see many things, many different approaches that seem to be uh, pretty effective. We see many different approaches. So one of the um, vaccines developed in China is an inactivated vaccine. So that would be like the flu vaccine. And that's, oh, right. I think, pretty simple for people to understand. You just grow mm -hmm. up a ton of virus and then you treat it with formaldehyde or some other chemical to inactivate it and give it to people that way. That's, you know, a very traditional and very effective vaccine approach. The inactivated polio vaccine also is manufactured using that approach. One of the vaccines, though, and I believe it's CanSino, is an ad 5 vectored vaccine. And that has been shown to be less effective in older people. Um, and the reason for that is probably because ad 5 does cause a lot of common colds. And by the time people, you know, get over the age of 65, they they just have a much higher chance of having had ad adenovirus 5 before. So that vaccine doesn't work as well. Because they've literally just had more colds in their life. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Wow. Well, this is great. I'm going to sound so smart on the family WhatsApp telling everybody <laughs> what I know. <laughs> Which is basically well, that you have to say Sputnik. That's the yeah, that's, yeah, that's all that stayed in my head the entire time. I'm like Sputnik. Well, <laughs> it means it means sojourner, actually. But um, oh, beautiful! It, it's taken on a second meaning, and that is satellite. And so I had <laughs> mentioned that on Twitter before, and I got a bunch of native Russian speakers correcting me, 
saying that it means satellite or it means uh, fellow traveler. Um, my husband insists, though, that it means sojourner and that the satellite meaning came after Sputnik, the satellite was launched. Um, so it's a controversial topic among Russian speakers, apparently. <laughs> but not how it's pronounced. It is pronounced Sputnik. Okay. Okay. Great. That's perfect. This has been extremely helpful. There's clearly a lot of nuance and complexity here. It doesn't change the basic takeaway that, that we have a lot of great options before us. I'm wondering if we could just close by asking how you're feeling about this announcement that we might have enough in the U.S. for everyone by May. Are you feeling optimistic? Is this a moment to feel like we're near an endpoint? I mean, I'm optimistic. I'm especially optimistic that we'll be vaccinated. You know, everybody who wants a vaccine will be able to access one by May. Um, however, my optimism is not that the pandemic is going to be over by by that time. Um, there are still so many things that are left to do. And one of those things will be, so right now we have a supply issue with the vaccine. So there's much more demand than there is supply. Once we have that supply issue worked out, then we're going to have to switch gears and start addressing people's concerns about the vaccine. And longer term, I'm more worried about that uh, in the U.S. and in Europe and in Canada. We already have seen significant anti-vaccine misinformation going around. And I mean, there are a lot of people, I think, who are vaccine hesitant. And that can be a lot of things, but it, it ultimately is just that. It's hesitant, not anti or you know opposed to vaccines. But the people who are opposed to vaccines, a much smaller group, are very, very much recruiting. And they have been, since the beginning of the pandemic, laying the groundwork to try to persuade the people who are vaccine hesitant to come over to their side. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be something that we're going to have to really address to make sure that we can get as many people as possible in the US to take the vaccine once uh, it's available to everybody. I think that that's one issue. And then the larger issue that that sort of tempers my optimism is that vaccine equity globally has been very uh, haphazard. And that's a nice way of putting it. Basically, rich countries have been hoarding the vaccines. And this is a pandemic. So it's a global public health crisis by definition. We need to be thinking right now about how we're going to vaccinate the world. Because especially now that we know that variants have emerged that are capable of at least partially evading vaccine immunity. And that is a, a high bar for the virus to clear. But variants emerge basically when the virus gets a chance to replicate. And if the virus is able to replicate freely in countries that don't have access to vaccines, we could see new variants emerge that might require booster shots, require reformulating the vaccines for countries and people who haven't received them yet. So this is something we need to be thinking about now. We need to be thinking about how to vaccinate the world and not just the U.S. Um, so I'm definitely optimistic that we're going to get vaccines by May. And in the U.S., life will go back to, quote unquote, normal, even though I, I think that will be a gradual process. Um, but I do think, you know, we need to be keeping the long game foremost in our minds when thinking about, you know, ending the pandemic. 
Yeah, that's really helpful. I I had just one follow up thought the, the um to the idea of of anti-vax sentiment or vaccine hesitancy. Do you think this idea that there because there are so many different vaccines out there, it could be helpful to people who might hear a rumor about one vaccine, and then you could be like, well, there are lots of other ones. What about this one? It's kind of harder to paint with a broad brush and say, no, well, they're all just bad, or to, to be afraid of all of them. Sure. I think, you know, I've tried to really frame the way that I'm thinking about vaccine hesitancy is listening first and foremost to what people's concerns are. And there are you know, across the board, I mean, there are some people who are just like, the issue is not the vaccines, it's the speed of the process, or it's the history um, with which medical research has treated my community, mm-hmm. or it's this technology is brand new, what about it? So there's a lot of different reasons for it. And the other good news is that there are other vaccines, um, the Novavax vaccine, for example, where the, the clinical trials should be reading out next month, I think, is a a protein subunit vaccine. And those are vaccines that have been around for a long time. The hepatitis B vaccine, for example, is a protein subunit vaccine. So I think we will be getting more and more vaccines. So if somebody's like, I don't want to try this newfangled vaccine technology, even though mRNA vaccines have been under development for over a decade, viral vector vaccines uh, have been in development for a long time as well. If somebody's not comfortable with taking a vaccine that prior to this pandemic was not approved or authorized for use, uh, then they will have options going forward to take a vaccine that is a a technology that's more familiar and that has been on the market for a long time. So I think that's, that's totally reasonable. I think we need to be very flexible and adapt to uh, what people's concerns are about vaccines, because I think that you know, just saying, oh, that's crazy. You know, like you should just quiet down and take your vaccine, I think is a very bad way to respond to people's reasonable concerns. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This is extremely helpful. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Angie, between talking to you today and then seeing Dolly Parton getting her vaccine, (laughs) I just feel, I feel so much better. Oh, yeah, that's, She's a treasure. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm so glad that that she's protected finally, especially yeah. since she played such a, a significant role in um making making the vaccines happen quickly. Yeah. Definitely. Cool well, yeah, thanks so much, Angie. Keep up the good work. Oh yeah, it's really my pleasure. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Jim. Hi, Maeve. Imagine you just hung up the phone when Angie did. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, my brain is a little tired from thinking about all of that immunology and virology that I have not thought about since, since medical school, when you're thinking about how all these vaccines were designed Mm -hmm. um, and it felt pretty academic because most vaccines, it was just kind of these vaccines exist and they work having Mm -hmm. to see them developed in real time and all these approaches tested and uh, it's um, it's a reminder of not to take for granted you know all the vaccines that we do have and how far we've come against infectious diseases but definitely yeah. it's extraordinary yeah yeah it really is I mean I was just sometimes picking up on certain like I was like antigens you know what those are don't you man <laughs> I'm sorry but- <laughs> yeah I did I could have interjected to sort of clarify some things but she does no. such a good job explaining, I felt like. Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, 
No, totally. It was it was incredible. And also, like I said, I can now say to my brothers and sisters that are, you know, living in various countries, like, I'll just tell them to listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you can incorporate some of it into your comedy sets when you are back on stage this summer. Mm -hmm. You know what? I think the polio material is going to go down really well. <laughs> it's It's edgy. It's topical. It's like uh -huh. the Lusitania stuff, you know. It, it, yeah, yeah. People just yeah. people just want to hear it, and they're ready to laugh. Yeah, they do. I mean, sometimes I'm like, why don't I have a job at late night TV? And then I think, no, it's better this way. Yeah, you know, <laughs> esoteric jokes about uh, 1950s illnesses. Yeah, <laughs> really makes you think. Um, uh, oh my god! Just before you go, um, I was thinking this last night. Like, I did read your piece. And it was, you know, you were saying, got to be patient. Even when you get vaccinated, you got to be patient. And I thought, oh, he, the way you teach like medical communication or whatever in college. Yes. Don't you? So how about this? Be patient or be a patient. Yeah. Mm, I'm not going <laughs> to. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's just. Okay. If you don't understand that, you can just say that you don't understand it. I'll explain. I have an intolerance to is... puns. It <laughs> they cause a reaction in me. <laughs> you can't pretend to be allergic or intolerant to something. That's actually <laughs> against your <laughs> your training. Yeah. You're intolerant. Okay, just try it. Okay, it's um, important. Oh yeah, how about this, Jim? Our producer just put this in the chat. Okay, I'm not taking responsibility. Okay, how about this? It's important not to lose your patience. That one only works when you write it out. <laughs> you don't think it's important for doctors not to lose their patients? Um, you disagree? I, I, I mean, I understand what you're going for, but I, I disagree profoundly with the approach. Uh, it's, it, it's like nails on a chalkboard me i don't why do i sense catherine is going to be back next week <laughs> <laughs> um she actually is you make a, a, a good point we'll be doing an anniversary <laughs> episode next week because it's been a year since our first phone call wow jeez, yeah. it's a year next week okay so you're both going to be back next week for your year anniversary show of social distance yeah and i think we'll call back mm -hmm. some uh, highlights and lowlights from the past year of our conversations. So if everyone could go back and just uh, listen to them all, <laughs> they'll be fresh in your mind. You want them to listen to every? No, no. Okay. I, I, I think they serve as sort of time capsule. And um, if you did mm -hmm. feel like trying to remember what things felt like back in a particular time, there are lots of them out there. Well, I mean, I know that you love hearing from listeners. So if anybody listening has moments from social distance that you'd like Jim and Catherine to revisit, then just email them or leave them a voicemail. Is that right, Jim? Social distance at theatlantic.com? Yes. And our voicemail line is 202-642-6487. And as always, if you like this show uh, and want to access all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. Social Distance is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. And next week, uh, I will not talk to you, Maeve, but uh, will mm -mm. again soon. And Yeah, I'll be listening, Jim. <laughs> I'll send notes. <laughs> Please. <laughs> all right. Take care, Maeve.
Bye. 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 Bye.